Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Thursday, January 11th, day 97 to the war with Hamas. Amanda Borshel Dan here with our editor, David Horvitz, for a one-on-one update. Hello, David. Hey, Amanda. All eyes are on The Hague, where South Africa is presenting a case that is alleging that Israel is acting with genocidal intent in the Gaza Strip. We'll hear what has happened so far this morning. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has left Israel. What messaging did he leave in his wake? All this and more when we're back. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing, environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. As we record and the war rages on in the Gaza Strip, the International Court of Justice in The Hague is hearing an application against Israel by South Africa that alleges that Israel has violated the Genocide Convention to which it is a signatory. What else are the charges, David? Well, today is, um, as we speak, the first of two days of hearings. Today is South Africa presenting its case, alleging that Israel is uh, carrying out genocide and has intent to carry out genocide in Gaza uh, and seeking basically to start a process that would uh, lead to an order requiring Israel to end its campaign against Hamas in Gaza. Tomorrow, Israel will present its defense And we are told, although I'm not sure that anyone knows anything with any certainty, that a ruling will be um, handed down fairly soon after that. So Israel gets to seat a justice, as does South Africa on this court. And the choice of former Supreme Court Justice Aaron Barak was met with some pushback, shall we say, here in Israel. Tell us a little bit about why you think he was chosen by our prime minister, correct? Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, Aaron Barak is is the most renowned uh, jurist um, in Israel, um, arguably in Israeli history, and as a, a staunch defender. And his critics would say someone who has sought to expand the role of the um, Supreme Court and the judiciary. He's a bête noire for this coalition, which in its pre-war iteration was, I would say, trying to subjugate the judiciary to the political majority. Um, And therefore, as the sort of instigator of the imbalance of power that the coalition alleged, um, he was really the last person that they would have anything to do with. And yet, of course, come to these proceedings in the world court and as the champion of Israel's independent powerhouse top court, he's the best person able to, I think the assumption is, 
to stand for a principle that says Israel is entirely capable and Israel's courts are entirely capable of judging Israel's actions by all international standards. And therefore, there is no reason for any outside uh, tribunal or court to intervene. Israel has an independent judiciary, it holds to the highest standards, and I'm the embodiment of that principle. And therefore, Netanyahu chose him. Now, of course, there was pushback from other members of the coalition, especially uh, on, on the, you know, the, the further right uh, of the coalition. But this was and is a moment of, uh, I would say, judicial or, or legal crisis for Israel. And Netanyahu evidently came to the fairly easy conclusion that, that Aaron Barak is among the uh, most important pieces of defense ammunition that Israel can muster. And it's in fact some of these very voices who are rejecting Barak that their voices are being used as evidence or quote-unquote evidence from South Africa for the case against Israel for genocidal intent. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah, well, that's what we've been hearing so far today. Um, by the time you, you're listening to this, the, today's hearings will probably be over. Um, it's basically, it's three hours or a little more that's been allocated for South Africa. Uh, and to the point where we are now, when, when we're sitting down to do this, uh, you're hearing the, the various South African representatives using Israeli words um, as ostensible proof of genocidal intent, including not only people on the very far right of the coalition, but also the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, and Netanyahu himself. Uh, for example, Netanyahu made comparisons um, with Amalek, uh, the biblical uh, uh, enemy that uh, uh, in in the in the biblical narrative, uh, Israel is obligated to wipe out. So if uh, um, Netanyahu is invoking Amalek, this is ostensible proof of genocidal intent, um, and that's what we're hearing. We're hearing um, South African representatives one after the other either minimizing or not referring at all to October the 7th, which is, uh, I'm sure Israel will argue, the reason why it, uh, it, it launched its military campaign in Gaza. The fact is, of course, that Israel was not in, in Gaza in any way until October the 7th. There were no civilians living there. There was no military presence. This was uh, a territory from which Israel had withdrawn in 2005. It went to war against Hamas in Gaza because of what happened on October the 7th, when thousands of Hamas-led terrorists burst through the border in dozens of places and slaughtered Israelis, most of them civilians. And Israel decided, as I think any normal country would, that it had to prevent that happening again and had to deter other enemies from attempting something similar. And it had to create a climate in which Israelis can again feel safe sleeping in their homes, all of which was you know, upset uh, on October the 7th. That is not featuring uh, so far, it certainly is not featured in today's first hearing where South Africa presents its case, because of course it undermines South Africa's case. Uh, much better to present uh, Israel's attacks on Hamas in Gaza and the consequent damage uh, which Israel would not deny, much better to present that as happening either in a vacuum or linking it to much deeper allegations about Israel's crimes against the Palestinians. The, today, minimally, uh, October the 7th is playing a part. I imagine tomorrow when Israel presents its case, lots of it will be placed in the context of an unprovoked attack inside sovereign Israel and the consequent necessity, as far as Israel is concerned, to prevent it happening again and to stop uh, and, and, and bring to justice one way or another the people who carried it out. I understand from our legal reporter, Jeremy Sharon, who is at The Hague right now, that a final ruling could take years, but it's there's a potentiality that there may be some kind of injunction for an immediate ceasefire. 
do you think that if that were to happen, that Israel would necessarily obey it? Well, I, I'm not an expert on the legal proceedings, and Jeremy is, but my understanding is at some point it may, uh, if there is some kind of interim ruling, indeed, the, the long-term judgment uh, um, is not anticipated anytime soon, but if there is some kind of interim ruling, uh, there's potential for it to move to the UN, to the Security Council, and so on. And then there's the potential question, uh, again, not my expertise, of the US uh, being the only uh, Security Council player likely to and capable of exercising a veto. The you know that kind of brings us on to the the recently ended visit by Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken. If you listen to what the Americans have said so far, you would assume that if we reached that kind of situation, the U.S. would indeed uh, wield a, a veto. Uh, the U.S. has has repeatedly highlighted that it is not pushing for a ceasefire at this stage. Uh, there are other comments as well, including from President Biden. Uh, that are not entirely of a piece with that mindset. But none, nonetheless, the bottom line as of now has been that the US is not uh, of the belief that the war is over. Uh, it does not believe that Israel has yet achieved a situation where it is no longer threatened by Hamas and it would not be pushing for a ceasefire. So if some kind of provisional order uh, were to reach the Security Council in some way or another, as things stand, you'd think that the US would veto. Um, if the U.S. did not veto, if other processes played out, uh, I don't. I don't see that Israel would easily uh, comply with uh, any kind of binding order to stop the war because it thinks that Hamas will. Because Hamas is still standing. Uh, at least half of Hamas's battalions are still functional. The Hamas leadership is intact, and there are something like 132 people taken hostage on October the 7th who are still being held by Hamas. So it would not be easy, to put it mildly, uh, to imagine that Israel um, would would concede to such an order, even if it carried the potential of sanctions and who knows what kind of other uh, efforts to harm Israel internationally. We're going to go to a short break and then we'll discuss more of Blinken's messaging. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we're back. Of course, the war is ongoing, but the volume has been lowered in northern Gaza. We we're being told by the IDF and the Defense Minister Yoav Gallant. But in central and southern Gaza, the IDF is still attempting to dismantle Hamas battalions. And as you noted in the op-ed yesterday and alluded to right now, the U.S. is not providing Israel with a carte blanche. So what other messages are you seeing from Blinken's trip? 
just first a little bit, and I, I know we've discussed this and you've discussed this with other of our staff on the podcast, um, Northern Gaza, Israel, the IDF claims, basically it is in um, near complete control, not complete control. We saw uh, um, uh, a concern that um, gunmen were emerging that led a tank, an Israeli tank, to fire earlier this week, which in, a, in turn set off explosives and killed six soldiers in Northern Gaza. There are still quite a... Uh, significant Israeli deployment in northern Gaza, but not of the order that it was um, just a few days and certainly a few weeks ago. There is heavy fighting in central Gaza, and there is um, heavy fighting in Khan Yunis in the south, and Israel has not really tackled Rafiach, Rafah on the southern uh, foot of Gaza, adjacent to the Egyptian border, which is an area that one way or another, there's going to have to be found some kind of uh, mechanism, because otherwise... Uh, at the very least, Hamas will survive in Rafiah and be able to spread back north again and potentially be able to arm or bring in components or weapons uh, from Egypt, either above ground or below ground. So there is a great deal that the IDF uh, believes it still has to do to defang and dismantle Hamas and ensure that Hamas cannot do anything like October the 7th again. In terms of the messaging and, and, and Blinken, um, not a carte blanche, but also, and we heard this from Lloyd Austin not too long ago, um, timelines and, and uh, deadlines not being set by America. It's interesting that Blinken, um, in terms of Israel's ostensible goals in the war, while Israel uh, talks about the army, especially talks about dismantling Hamas, and Netanyahu speaks about destroying Hamas, and Biden, not terribly long ago, was saying, no, Israel needs to eliminate Hamas. Blinken on this trip talked about the Israeli ostensible goal of ensuring that October the 7th cannot happen again. Uh, that's much more vague and ambivalent. Um, he was upholding that ostensible goal, which is not what Israel defines as its goal. So I think that's interesting. And then there was lots of uh, um, very interesting messaging where, you know, the way I see it, you've got major issues where Blinken was setting out positions um, quite at odds with this coalition. Uh, not so much on Lebanon, where um, he asserted, and I think there's truth in this, that the Israeli government shares the US ambition to avoid an escalation, although there are some in the Israeli government who are pretty adamant or pretty certain in terms of the assessment that it's not going to be possible to um, push Hezbollah away from the northern border without a resort to greater force. But if it can be avoided, yes, Israel would like to avoid that. So there, I think Israel and the US are not radically out of line. But in terms of the day after in Gaza, especially, um, and in terms of waging the campaign even now in southern Gaza, uh, American disquiet is ever more obvious. Uh, American concern about civilian loss of life. Um, Blinken publicly uh, expressed concern about civilian loss of life. And the State Department spokesperson in a readout of Blinken's talks with um, Israeli leaders basically required no more harm to civilians in Gaza. And that's, that is a recipe for not being able to fight. The way that Hamas sets up fighting from within the population it ostensibly governs means that with the best will in the world, with every reasonable effort, there is going to be harm to civilians because that's from, from, from whose midst Hamas is fighting. And then in terms of the long-term goal, basically, or the, or the Gaza the day after, or Israel's future, what you heard in, in my understanding was Blinken saying, 
Israel's security and by extension Israel's capacity to continue to exist um, requires it uh, to integrate with the region and integration with the region which Israel would be delighted to um, deepen in turn according to Blinken requires a pathway and the eventual establishment uh, of Palestinian statehood a pathway to statehood and eventually uh, Palestinian statehood uh, joint governance of the West Bank and Gaza by a reformed Palestinian authority that is not a threat to Israel. Um, that's the kind of vision that Blinken was setting out. Now, Netanyahu has almost set out the opposite vision. Certainly until October the 7th, Netanyahu's argument was, look, we're making peace with others in this region, and I believe that this will in turn create a circumstance in which the Palestinian demands will be less untenable from Israel's point of view, and we will be able to reach an accommodation with the Palestinians that we and they can live with. Blinken is saying, no, you're not going to get... Um, the full or widened normalization that you seek in this region unless or until there is a uh, solution for the Palestinians that involves statehood for the Palestinians. Um, the Saudis, who were, of course, the, the big prize that Israel thought was you know, close to being at hand, and, and Biden has said one of the reasons he sees for October the 7th was the realization in Hamas that Israel was close to normalizing with Saudi Arabia. Make of that what you will. But Blinken is saying, and the Saudis have basically said the same thing in the last few days, no normalization with Israel unless there's at least a credible horizon, a pathway to Palestinian statehood. So you have basically this government and this administration who, on, on whom Israel so, so immensely depends with very different visions for Israel's long-term future in a climate that we should add where I think probably most Israelis, according to polls, are alienated from their government, but they're also pretty alienated from the notion that anything that they look to on the Palestinian horizon constitutes a leadership with whom they feel it might be safe uh, to advance substantive progress towards Palestinian independence. You know, pe people look at opinion polls, make of those what you will about Palestinian support for what happened on October the 7th. It's a very complex picture that emerges there, but it certainly shows anything anything but um, overwhelming revulsion and opposition and uh, 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 denouncement by Palestinians of October the 7th. And one last thing that I'll add in that context, when you look at where Blinken has traveled in this region on this trip and previous trips, he did not obtain denunciation from most Arab states for anything that Hamas has done and did on October the 7th. And Israelis are aware of that as well. It's not as though the Arab world en masse has risen up and expressed its uh, horror at what happened on October the 7th. You would understand if criticism of Israel's response followed in, that, in, in the Arab context, but there was not the initial uh, denunciation. And that uh, uh, resonates with Israelis as well. Netanyahu of 2009 delivered a speech at Bailan in which he basically promoted or agreed to a Palestinian state. Netanyahu of today relies on far-right voices for his coalition. However, you talked about polling. A lot of polling is indicating that a more centrist figure, Gantz, is potentially the next uh, prime minister if were there to be elections right now. I wonder... Do you think that the Netanyahu of 2009 could return? I don't think so. Um, but of course, it's politics and politics is volatile and unpredictable. I think Netanyahu has has um, made his choice and partnered for many, many years now um, with 
rather than uh, partners at the center who have become increasingly alienated from him uh, with people to the right. He mainstreamed people who, in my opinion, and I wrote this many, many times, have no place in the mainstream. I'm thinking most especially of Itamar Ben-Gvir, of Atzmai Yudit, but others as well. Uh, The Likud is is not uh, a center-right party anymore, um, certainly in terms of its Knesset delegation on the whole. It's firmly a right-wing party with many uh, who have views that are not much different to those of far-right parties like Ben Gvir's and Bezalel Smotrich's religious Zionism. And uh, parties in the center and the center-left are not about to ally with Netanyahu in any immediately plausible political scenario. Um, and I also think, you know, I don't know to judge what Netanyahu really believes, but his political positioning uh, is plainly not where it was in 2009. Now, you might wonder, therefore, you know, if, if what I said before about Israelis being pretty alienated from the notion of Palestinian partnerships at the moment, how is it that a centrist politician such as Benny Gantz is in the polls so much more popular? And I think part of that is because of October the 7th, like it or not, Mr. Netanyahu, you, you, you were and are the prime minister, and therefore ultimately the blame for October the 7th rests with you. However unfair you might feel that is, however much you might want to blame the army, which has accepted um, immense responsibility as it should, because ultimately it's the army that had to protect Israelis and failed. So I think Israelis are troubled by Netanyahu Uh, in the context of he's the head of this hierarchy when Israel's worst catastrophe happened. Um, And they don't see Gantz as having that kind of uh, personal responsibility. And they think, I think that it's quite credible when Gantz said, I joined this coalition for the period of the war because we have to do what's best for Israel. And I wanted wide support for the, the the argument that says there needs to be a campaign that dismantles Hamas, and I want to be able to help influence the way that campaign is carried out and so on. Uh, I'm not sure what happens if, when all of this is over and we go back to quote-unquote politics as usual. I don't know if um, if the centre-right, or more, more, more especially the right and the far-right, uh, start to regain support. Uh, ideologically, I don't think that... Um, huge numbers of Israelis have been alienated from right-wing politics, um, but we'll see how that pro- how proves. I don't necessarily think that Gantz is the best political campaigner. I think he's quite a vulnerable politician in terms of, of campaign skills. But of course, you could argue that there are times when someone who's kind of straight and not um, too, too obviously cynical, that that might benefit him. I don't know. I don't know what to make of it, uh, but I would be incredibly wary about any making any kind of political predictions, and I would be incredibly wary of polling about how parties are and aren't doing at the moment. This is a crisis period for Israel, unlike anything that we've known certainly since the the foundation of the state, and you know the political fallout. I think it's too early to say anything with anything approaching certainty. David, thank you so much for joining me in our Jerusalem office today. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have comment or question about this or any other episode, please drop us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. Shalom.